Good morning, Providence. You can turn with me to Luke chapter number nine. Luke chapter number nine. I don't know how you feel or what you think about where we've been, but uh, it has been rich the last few weeks in Scripture. The just a little like if I can back off and look at the big picture, Luke chapter number eight was all about God, uh, Christ having the power over all the different realms because he was the son of God. Luke does not unfold his gospel in a strict chronological order, but he does unfold it in a roughly chronological order, if that makes sense. He's not trying to get then this, then this, then this. He's grouping things together by topic we're uh, crafting it in the way that he wants to go. And they're roughly about the time that they happen. Some things are anachronistic. They're, they're out of time with um, what happened. But um, uh, Luke chapter number nine is really fascinating. We're, we're going to uh, introduce the fact that the, the apostles had power and authority. You're going to see that in a minute. Jesus gave it to them. And then he sent them out on a mission trip. And the internship or the mission trip was awesome. But what Jesus then, what Luke does then for the chapter number nine is he's wrapping up the Galilean ministry. This is the end of the ministry in Galilee, and we'll see that in just a second. And he, he develops dual threads that we're going to see through this. The first thread is Jesus is God, so therefore he has the authority and the power. We see this next week, we're going to look at the feeding of 5,000. Later on, we're going to see the transfiguration. And, and then we're going to see the, the healing of a boy possessed by demons. At the end of that miracle, this says people marvel at the majesty of God is the way it, um, it, way it ends. Then the, the other thread that goes through there is these disciples or apostles are thinking, man, this is awesome. We got all this power and we got all this authority. But then Jesus says, now, wait a minute. There is a cost to following me. yes. You have power and authority. Yes, um, these things are going to be good, but it's going to come at a cost. And you know, the same thing is true for us. We, we have the power of God working mightily in our hearts. And when we speak God's word, we, we can speak it with authority because it's God's word. However, it comes at a cost. And we're going to see those dual threads. And then if you'll take Luke chapter 9, I want to show you something um, there is a, a hard transition in Luke 9. Verse number 51 is the transition in Luke. 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The Galilean ministry is over in Luke's gospel in Luke 9.50. Luke 9.51, he says, All right, from here until we get to Jerusalem, these are the events that are going on as Jesus travels to Jerusalem, okay? And so there's a hard break. I have a, a two-volume commentary, and each volume is this thick, and it's on the book of Luke. And the first volume is through 951, and then the second volume is everything after that. So I want to give you a roadmap of Luke because I think it's important for us to back off and see the big picture of what's happening. If you'll stand with me, then we'll read our passage of Scripture today. Luke chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse number one. 
And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard, what, uh, heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because he, it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Lord, you know my, my private prayers and you know the pleadings of my heart. And I pray that you'll fulfill them today in the uh, worship service in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. I entitled this uh, sermon, The Training of the Twelve. Some of you may be familiar with a book by A.B. Bruce called The Training of the Twelve. But um, many professions have internships or apprenticeships. Doctors, lawyers, pastors, even accountants have intern internships. Uh, th there comes a point when one needs to take the book knowledge that they have and actually apply it to real life. In my, profession as a, um, in my profession, seminary students undertake to learn all the practical things that they can, really can't learn in the classroom. You know, you take a counseling class and everything works out perfectly in the counseling class. You actually do the counseling, you found out it never works out like it said it did in the class. Um, you, learn, you learn that things are not always as easy as the textbooks, Right? In our passage today, Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry in Galilee, but before he set his face to go to Jerusalem um, and the cross, and before he gave his disciples their great commission to reach all the nations with the gospel, he wanted to give them some practical ministry experience. And so he sent them out on a mission to the surrounding communities. And so in order for any internship to be effective, the internship needs to know exactly what's involved in the internship, right? What's my calling as an intern? Well, when Jesus sent his disciples out to test their uh, gifts for ministry, he gave them a solemn charge in, in a, somewhat of a different and unusual terms. And there were three main parts of this. And I want you to see that. First of all, um, their mission as apostles, which was a double mission. Their mission was to preach and to heal. Preach the gospel and to heal people. Secondly, he gave them power and authority that they needed to fulfill their mission. And then third, the manner in which they were to execute their mission, he gave them that as well. The specific instructions about don't take your tunic and that sort of thing. Then, in the next little paragraph, Luke shows us what, how the apostles fulfilled their mission and how people responded as, as they went out. And so the apostolic mission was twofold to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal. And so their ministry involved preaching and healing. And they ministered to people's bodies as well as to their souls. But this is important. 
the preaching came first, okay? The primary calling of the apostles was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And this also happened to be their primary calling of Jesus Christ. And so the best way to summarize their, their ministry of God's word was to say that they preached the kingdom. That was primary. Preaching the kingdom was more important than anything else that they were doing at that time. Now, what is the kingdom of God? There's a, there's a in theological circles, theologians like to argue, what, is there a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Okay, they're the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, it's the same thing. The kingdom of God is not a territory protected by an army or an empire on a map. Rather, the kingdom of God is a sovereign dominion in the hearts of God's people. So there's no boundaries, no physical, geographical boundaries. His royal authority and his sovereign reign, God is king, so wherever he is, the kingdom is. Isn't that great? The kingdom is present wherever God exercises his kingly power and wherever people honor and serve him as their king. I think about some of the, some of the missionaries of old, for example, uh, uh, Carey and, and um, Judson going out uh, to far lands and they were the only believers. But the kingdom went with them. It's amazing to think about that. This little kingdom outpost in a mass of humanity that's in darkness, the kingdom of darkness. Jesus had been preaching the kingdom ever since he began his public ministry, and now the apostles were to preach the same message, proclaiming the kingdom had come in the person of Jesus Christ. But there was a second thing. The second um, part of their ministry calling was in order to confirm the truth of their message, the apostles performed miracles of healing. The miracles of healing confirmed their message. Okay? They cured the sick, cast out demons, cleansed lepers, gave sight to the blind. Their miraculous ministry uh, proved that what they said is true, the kingdom had come. Remember, this is Israel. They had the Old Testament. They knew that in God's kingdom, the Messiah would heal. That was proof, right? Um, their miraculous healing proved that what they said was true. God's kingdom of come. Christ arrived as king to redeem people from the curse of the fall. He came to save people, body and soul, delivered them from death and disease. He cared for people's physical needs, and he had the power to make them whole. This was all confirmed by the miracles of the apostles. And this is, a, this is a very important distinction. The apostles were not trying to call attention to themselves, but to Jesus Christ. And that's the difference between the apostles and the charlatans that you see in Christianity today. Their miracles showed that what they said about salvation was true. 
Now, obviously, they couldn't heal everyone, and even the people they healed would get sick again and eventually die. But the most important thing, therefore, was not giving people some kind of temporary healing, but to give them eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. That was far and above more important. The apostolic performance of miracles proved the proclamation of the apostolic gospel. And here's the thing. Preaching and healing had always been the main hallmarks of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And together the apostles would preach the gospel to more people in more places than Jesus could ever do all by himself. Right? They went all over. That's When he says, you will do greater things, that's what he's talking about. Okay? The gospel of the kingdom, and this is the wonderful thing, the gospel of the kingdom is still spreading. Today, the ministry of Jesus and his apostles is extended through the church. As remarkable as it may seem, Jesus does the same work through ordinary men, women, and children in the church. Me and y'all. Together, we are called to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Let me emphasize that one more time. You and I are called to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. That's our calling. That's not my calling. That's our calling. It's so important for us to understand that. We proclaim the apostolic message of the cross, the empty tomb, announcing that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sinners can receive forgiveness from God with the free gift of eternal life. This is our first and fundamental calling. We are also called to heal. What do I mean by that? In other words, minister to people's material and physical needs and spiritual needs. At certain times and in some places, this ministry may be miraculous, especially when the gospel first penetrates a culture. I believe that in places where the gospel is erupting into, that's I-R-R, erupt, not E-R-R. Look that word up, erupt. When it's breaking in to a culture, God allows miracles to accompany it. But that's not normal, okay? In order to confirm the truth of his word, God certainly can and sometimes may heal people in miraculous ways. But when, whenever and wherever the church gets established, the church itself becomes the confirmation of the gospel. How did people know that the, God, the apostles were telling the truth about the kingdom? In part, their miracles proved it. How do people know that we are telling the truth about salvation, especially when we, we can't see Jesus in person? People don't know this by our miracles, but as a community of people, we affirm this by our love, by our suffering, and the sacrificial way that we care for other people's needs. That's the confirmation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, like Jesus and the apostles, the church has a double mission. We are called to a ministry of both word and deed. And these two aspects of ministry should never be separated. 
As a church, we seek to minister to people's physical as well as spiritual needs. We care for the sick, don't we? We feed the hungry. We clothe the naked. We visit prisoners. We welcome strangers, showing hospitality to the homeless. There is a reason why almost every single hospital ever established in the United States had a name of a denomination on it. That's what Christians do. We do these things because Jesus did them. We do them because God cares for our bodies like He cares for our souls. Do you, you, you want to know how we know that He cares for our bodies? When we get resurrected, we actually have a body. We don't spend eternity in an, um, a de, what's the word I'm looking for? Separated from our body. I can't think of the word right now I'm looking for. We're not disembodied. We don't have a disembodied existence for all of eternity. One day, when Jesus Christ comes back, these bodies with all their problems, all their uh, infirmities, will be completely transformed into, the Paul said, a spiritual body, much greater than the physical body, and we will live for the rest of eternity in perfect spiritual bodies. Amen? God cares about bodies. And we do these things because meeting people's needs help confirm the truth of our message. Often, people are not ready to receive Christ until they see His love demonstrated in a tangible way through the healing service of the church. Here in Culpeper, we've got the addiction recovery, right? We, we have the, um, um, the pregnancy center and all these things where we can help out. There's, there's a number of ministries like that. We have the ministry uh, that, that um, we give to on a monthly basis and we get a report back of caring for people's needs who have financial needs like um, power and, and that sort of thing. They, we help out with that as well. And so there's a lot of, a lot of ways that churches help. And so when, when Jesus gave the apostles their mission, he also gave them divine authority and almighty power to complete it. Look at verse number one. And he, you, you're thinking, man, this is going to be a long sermon. He's only on verse one. <laughs> It'll move a little faster, I promise. And he called the 12 apostles together and gave them power. Actually, it just says a 12. But the, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now, what's the difference? My, um, I, was, I hate to admit this because now it looks so easy, but about three months ago, uh, my daughter called and my six-year-old granddaughter asked me this question. She said, Grandpa, what's the difference between power and authority? Because she was memorizing a Bible verse. I was stumped. You know, I'm trying to think of all these examples. And I had to think about it and read about it, actually, to, to really give an answer I felt like was, was very good. And here's, here's what, what I came up with. And I don't know who said it, but it's good. Power is the ability to do something, and authority is the right to do something. Now, why on earth I couldn't think of that when my six-year-old was asking me the question? I have no idea. You know what she said? I got to tell you this. When I couldn't answer the question, you know what she said? <laughs> She said, I'll ask Grandma. <laughs> Actually, 
Uh, they call Heather Gigi. She said, well, I'll just ask Gigi. She knows. So anyway, the guy with all the education is not as impressive as, as Gigi. Obviously, and that's so simple. Why didn't I think of that? You know? Yeah. Obviously, the apostles needed the power to perform the miracles. Otherwise, they would make complete fools of themselves. They were claiming that the kingdom had come and that they needed to be able to back up this claim by demonstrating the power of the kingdom. These Jewish people, they knew what it meant when the kingdom came. And they could look at the Old Testament scripture. All right, the kingdom's come. Prove it. This is what the Old Testament says. That's what, that's what was going on here. Um, they, they demonstrated by the, the power of the kingdom by healing people. And if they offered to heal people and they failed, their gospel would have no credibility whatsoever. So Jesus gave them his own divine power over demons and diseases. The apostles had seen him demonstrate his power day after day after day, cleansing lepers, uh, mending broken bones, raising the dead, performing all kinds of healing miracles. And now in the name of Jesus, they would have the same mighty power. They would cast out demons, give sight to the blind, enable the lame to walk. Now think about it. That would be pretty heady to be able to do that, wouldn't it? That would be pretty cool. And that's why Jesus spent part of chapter 9 reminding them this comes with a cost. comes with a cost. Now, in addition to power, Jesus also gave his apostles authority to perform these miracles, stated explicitly in verse number one and implied in verse number two, which says he sent out the 12. Now, I'm going to give you a little Greek insight here. That word sent is the word apostoline. It's, it's the word for apostle. The, the noun form is apostolos. Apostle is so, simply someone who is sent out. The 12 were the apostles because they were the ones sent out. In, in a technical sense, um, he's sent out. Someone who's sent as an official representative, like an ambassador, somebody who could speak for the king. The apostles in the biblical gospels were the personal representatives of none other than Jesus Christ. This ensured that any power they were given would not be used for their own purposes, but only under divine direction of Jesus Christ. And so the apostles, they were given power and authority. They had both the ability and the right to carry out that commission. Now think about this. Sometimes people have the power to do something, but not the authority. And if they use their power, they're abusing it. For example, a street gang might have power to control an urban neighborhood, but it doesn't have the rightful authority. On the flip side, a local police officer might have the authority to stop the gang violence, but if he doesn't have any backup, he may not have the power to stop the gang violence. See how that works? And the apostles had both the power and authority of God, the eternal Son of God. So this is especially important when it came to casting out demons. Now think about this. What right did mere human beings have to cast out demons? They had no right at all. I don't have the right to cast out demons. Do you? 
We don't. Yet Luke tells us that Jesus gave that authority over how many of the demons? All of them. Not even one fallen angel, except for maybe Satan himself, could resist their will. Matter of fact, this, this authority that they have, this is a thought I just had, is only temporary because right after the, the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a demoniac boy, a boy that had a demon. It's in Luke chapter 9. They couldn't cast him out. It was only a temporary authority even at this time. But anyway, if the apostles decided to cast out a demon, they could cast it out, freeing people from their bondage to demonic darkness. Can I just give you another random thought? Just came to my mind as I'm speaking. Maybe what happened with these apostles is that they got a little bit heady. And they thought, well, okay, well, Jesus is up on the mountain somewhere. We'll just go and cast this demon out. And Jesus is just reminding them, hey, look, this mission of yours, yeah, you might have authority, but it also takes a lot of prayer. That's one of the costs. I don't know, just something that just popped in my head as I'm preaching. The, the authority these apostles had was unique. They alone were fully authorized to serve as personal representatives of Jesus Christ, preaching the good news of the kingdom, performing its miraculous signs. And to this day, we recognize their unique authority. How? We read their New Testament. And it's the very Word of God. Well, the apostles also had a, um, two, they had a twofold mission. They had the power and authority to fulfill it. They were also called to preach and to heal the, um, with the gospel. But to carry out this mission, they needed to know how they were supposed to do it. And so Jesus gave them a special set of instructions. Let's look at this in verses 3 and 4. Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever, you, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. So what did he tell them? Travel light. That's why I tell people when they go to Israel with me. Travel light. Just travel light. You don't need that much. So <clears throat> The apostles simply went as they were. Wherever they went, they didn't stay long. Jesus told them to enter, stay, and leave from the same house. Now maybe this meant that they should not look for luxury. A lot of people speculated. There were, there were about four different reasons commentators gave for them to do this. One of the biggest speculations was, well, they, they might find better and better accommodations with richer and richer people as they were in the town. Possibly. Rather than moving from house to house, searching for better lo lodgings, they were supposed to be content with what God provided. It could also be that they were on the move. They only stayed there for just a short period of time, then they moved to the next village. Whatever it is, um, they were supposed to be content with God, what God provided. This schedule helps to convey the urgency of their mission. They were utterly dependent upon God. This is a, an important source of their apostolic internship. Rather than relying upon their own resources, the apostles had to entrust themselves entirely to God's providential care. In this way, they would learn to trust God for everything. Were they, were they going to need it when he left? They were, weren't they? Now, in reality, we trust God for everything as well. Everything that we have providentially comes from God. But we normally, most of us are not put in a place where we have to remind ourselves of that. 
Most of us don't have that as a day-to-day living like they did. I mean, anybody wake up today and say, I wonder where my food's going to come from today? From time to time, some Christians have concluded that every missionary should travel the same way. Don't do this, Seth and Michelle. <laughs> Don't try this, okay? Not taking any supplies or asking any money. This would be a, a good example of bad exegesis. Exegesis is the art of interpretation. That would be bad exegesis. And here's why. Later, Jesus told the apostles to do almost exactly the opposite. Now, in chapter 10, you're going to see he does the same thing. Go out, don't take anything with you. But in Luke chapter 22, right, um, right at the end of the Last Supper, he says, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and a sword too. Okay? So not even the apostles live this way all the time. There's more than one way to trust God. There's more than one godly way to gain support we need for missionary work. Having said that, we need to remember, though, that God gives us what we truly need, and we really don't need that much for gospel ministry. Think about what, how many churches do you know just seem to be struggling financially? They're small, almost insignificant uh, seeming. How many missionaries do you know? They go to the field and it takes forever for the church to get a building that's their own because everything moves so slow. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, uh, why don't they just have more money? Why don't they just have more resources? And here's the thing I need to keep reminding myself and keep reminding you. God's power is made a manifest through our weakness and so with little resources god turns nations upside down with few resources he changes communities i mean you never see, you almost never see a some sort of ministry to the homeless in some immaculate facility you almost never see an addiction recovery facility run by Christians that's in a great place. Because God gives them exactly what they need to perform what they need. Because it's all done by Him anyway. God always supplies what we truly need. Isn't that great? Now God certainly provided the apostles with what they needed. He gave them power. He gave them authority for ministry. He gave them their daily needs, and he enabled them to carry their mission. Carried out, they did, taking the good news of Jesus Christ into all the surrounding communities. Luke says this in verse number 6. They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing where? Everywhere. Everywhere. In other words, the apostles fulfilled all the requirements of their internship. Yay. <laughs> right? Good job. You graduate. When Jesus gave the apostles their instructions, he obviously attached special importance to the way God responded to the gospel. Some would receive the good news by faith. They would welcome the apostles in their own homes and believe the gospel. Others wouldn't even give them basic hospitality. <coughs> this was more than just bad manners. This was a rejection of God. Remember, the apostles were representatives of Jesus Christ, and so to reject the apostles is to reject Jesus. And it hasn't changed. 
Jesus told his disciples what to do when people rejected them. Look at verse number five. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. There are volumes of material written about shaking the dust off your feet. Can I condense it all down to you, for you? You know what it is? It's simply a public rebuke. (laughs) That's all it is. In effect, the apostles were rejecting the town the same way that the town rejected them. Shaking off the dust from their sandals was a sign that the people in that community were, and this is important, outside the kingdom of God. God, Jesus named three in particular. Chorazim, Bethsaida, and you remember the third one? Capernaum, his hometown, his home base of operations. He says it's better for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's better in Tyre and Sidon. You know what that means? It means that most likely almost nobody in those towns followed Jesus. Sad, isn't it? They rejected Jesus. So when you shake the dust off, that was symbolic of, okay, you people are outside the kingdom. The same thing happens whenever we preach the gospel today. We proclaim the forgiveness of sins, the free gift of eternal life through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. People respond to that message in different ways. Some people believe and are saved. Others reject it and are condemned. But either way, the gospel clarifies people's condition and it shows where they really stand spiritually. People's response shows where they stand spiritually. Now, that does not mean that they stay there. I would say almost 100% of people reject the gospel the first time they hear it. Did you? Most of you probably didn't get saved the first time you heard the gospel. You rejected it. But you're saved, right? Yeah. And so that, that it shows their, their spiritual condition. It shows where they really stand. Until they hear the good news, it is our responsibility to give it to them. But once they hear it, it's their responsibility to believe it or else be forever lost. If they don't believe the good news, they're lost forever. There's a striking example of how one man responded to the gospel at the end of this passage. His name is Herod. Herod Antipas, the son of, the, of Herod the Great. Now his capital was Caesarea Philippi, which is near the um, place where Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River. The gates of hell are there. Okay? And this is what, this is what um, Luke tells us, verse number 7 and 8. He said, Herod the Tetrarch heard about what was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some, John had been raised from the dead, some by Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So suddenly, Jesus seemed to be everywhere. People all over Galilee were talking about his ministry. This is because the apostles had done their work well, not advancing themselves, but preaching him, preaching Jesus Christ, performing miracles in his name. And when they moved on to the next place, therefore, the people they left behind were all talking about Jesus. This made a perfect model for Christian ministry, touching people's lives in a way that leaves them deeply impressed, not with us, but with our Savior. Everyone in Israel was talking about the Savior, Who was this Jesus? People had different opinions. Understandably, 
Um, Herod was confused. Some said this. Others said that. And it was hard to get the story straight. Frankly, all the talk about John the Baptist was starting to frighten him. And so he said, John, I beheaded. But who is this guy I'm hearing about? To all of this, Luke adds a haunting comment. Look at what it says. Verse number 9. And he sought to see him. Herod's curiosity was getting the best of him and he wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to know who he was. He just wanted to make sure that Jesus wasn't John the Baptist. Perhaps his guilty conscience made him afraid of John's ghost. Because that, that was the common belief. That uh, they believed in ghosts. That's why Jesus, I said, I think it was last week, I said he ate the fish to prove that he wasn't a ghost. All this is important. But whatever his reasons for wanting to see Jesus, Herod was asking the right question. I want to end in the next couple of minutes with this. It is the ultimate question that we have to answer for ourselves and ought to be the center of our ministry. It's a question that Luke goes back to again and again. It's this. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Herod's example shows how absolutely crucial it is to make a firm decision for Christ. If we don't receive him by faith, we really are rejecting him, and eventually he's going to reject us. And this is true even if we express some interest in Jesus. Herod was interested in Jesus. He found Jesus fascinating. He wanted to meet him and know more about him, but he never trusted him for salvation. And over and over, you see people come so close to Jesus, interested in Jesus, and never come to him for salvation. It takes more than idle curiosity for someone to come to Christ. What does it take for someone to come to Christ? It takes repentance for sin, doesn't it? And it takes faith in Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of sinners. We need to do more than just take a look at Jesus. We need to come to the right conclusion about Him, knowing for sure that He is our Savior. And once we do, once we do, we will want others to know Jesus too, won't we? We will go everywhere in the power of the Spirit and the authority of his name, and we will preach the gospel, and we will heal people with the love of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for this passage, Lord, the internship, and how much we can learn. I pray that you will renew us in our daily witness that we will be more emboldened to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. That we will be more concerned about doing acts of mercy and ministering to people who need desperately need help, Lord. I pray that we'll give <coughs> more than lip service. And Lord, I pray that when we do, we will see the kingdom of God breaking in to places that we never thought possible. In his name we pray. Amen.